The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today on the Blue Journal podcast, we are going to be discussing the article, Recombinant Human Activated Protein C for Adults with Septic Shock, a Randomized Controlled Trial, which is published in the May 15, 2013 edition of the Blue Journal. I'm joined today by Dr. Jalali Anand, who is the head of the general ICU at Raymond Poincaré Hospital in Paris and the dean of the medical school at Versailles University. His main topic of interest is the diagnosis and treatment of sepsis. Also joining me today is Dr. Alastair McKenzie, consultant in anesthesia and critical care for 18 years at the National Health Services in Fife, Scotland, United Kingdom. The majority of his clinical time is in critical care. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Dr. Anand, the story of activated protein C has been controversial since the drug was approved. Please tell us why you and your colleagues undertook this trial and, briefly, what the main findings were. And in particular, do you think that the premature termination of the drotrachogen-alpha portion of this trial introduced any important bias because of lack of statistical power? Currently, we and our colleagues here in France thought a few years after the publication of the original PROWESS trial, so back in 2001, that it might be important to have second trial on the same drug conducted independently of the pharmaceutical industry. Unfortunately, for almost seven years, it was absolutely impossible to obtain ethical approval or approval from the regulatory agency here in France to do a placebo, a randomized controlled trial. And this became feasible only when the EMEA in Europe requested from Lilly a new trial. So by that time, in 2007, we were happy to finally having the authorization from both the regulatory agency in France and the ethics committee to start our investigator-driven, investigator-led, completely independent from the industry to evaluate the uh, benefit-risk ratio of activated protein C in the group of patients we thought would be the most responsive to the drug, that is, uh, those with severe septic shock. So this is why we started doing that trial. It was a little bit difficult to recruit patients because activated protein C was on the market and physicians who were convinced by the uh, benefit of a drug were using it in their routine practices. So it was uh, 
a bit difficult to run a clinical trial meanwhile the drug is available for routine practice. Anyway, we could recruited 411 patients up to October 2011. By that time, the ProWeshock trial ended with negative findings, and then Lilly Company decided to withdraw the drug from the market. Again, unfortunately, it was not possible to get the drug from them to continue the trial up to the 1,300 patients that we plan to recruit. So we stopped the trial because the drug was no more available, uh, but still we're able to evaluate its benefit-to-risk ratio in 411 patients, which were markedly more severe than the patients recruited in the ProSHOCK trial. And this point is very important because, as you know, one of the criticisms of the ProSHOCK when it was published was that the drugs failed because they recruited the wrong population, patients at low risk of death. So the current approach trial with severe septic shock patients added important information that even in patients at high risk of death, the drug has absolutely showed no evidence of survival benefit or of benefit on any morbidity outcome. Yes, one may argue that because of a premature termination, the study may lack statistical power. However, if one takes into account both pro-shock address the resolved trial in children and approach, then one has several randomized controlled trials that reproducibly failed to demonstrate any survival benefit from uh, activated protein C in a broad range of severity of a severe sepsis or septic shock. So I don't think that uh, the truncation of a trial produced false negative results. By contrast, I believe that the initial, the original ProS trial was actually a falsely positive trial. Dr. McKenzie, Dr. Anon raised a couple of uh, important points in his explanation of the rationale for the trial and his explanation of the findings of their current study. I would like you to uh, address two points that he raised. First was that he drew a strong distinction between the trial that he and his colleagues did being conducted independently of the company that manufactures the drug. And second, he talked about the false positive result that he believes came out of the first randomized controlled trial published in 2001. And I, I wonder if you could help us understand why, in the context of the story of activated protein C, it was so important that this study be done independent of the drug manufacturer, and also some of the reasons why the first trial might have resulted in a false positive result. 
I think that Dr. Anan is, is correct that the ideal trial um, would definitely be conducted independently. It would be, des be designed and conducted and analysed in a way where all the data is available and everybody is completely clear about the findings. So it's difficult when trials are so expensive for them to be fully independent. But I think he managed something extremely good there with the, having funding from the French government. I also agree with what he says that his findings are in keeping with Travis Shock, Address, Resolve, all randomised placebo-controlled trials with negative findings for APC, and I think his results are credible despite the trial being terminated early because the drug was withdrawn. Regarding a false positive trial for, um, for Prowess, well, I think Prowess was actually quite a sort of a complicated trial with some rather unusual results. I'd just like to speak for a few minutes on Prowess to look at some of the potential limitations. Prowess, as you know, was a randomised placebo-controlled trial of APC and severe sepsis of various degrees of severity, with a primary endpoint of 28-day mortality, which I think is important to note, and it ran mid-98-2000. At the first interim analysis, um, after 720 patients, there was basically um, nothing happening. There were only seven fewer deaths at 28 days in the APC arm versus placebo. And around this time, mid-trial, a number of protocol changes were introduced. And there then seemed to become a trial of two halves, and things were becoming more complicated. At the second interim analysis, the seven fewer deaths in the first half were joined by 42 fewer deaths in the second phase, giving an overall 49 fewer 28B mortalities in the APC arm, and this gave the 6% absolute reduction in mortality that stopped the trial. But I think it's worth um, emphasising that 28 day mortality primary endpoint to be classified as a survivor, obviously you just had to be alive at day 28, even if you were on a ventilator, inotrope, renal support, and died a few days later, you were still a 28-day survivor for trial primary endpoint. So I much prefer Dr. Anand's primary endpoint of 90-day mortality. It's less easy for, for other factors to interfere with, with that endpoint. So I suppose that the, the question is, were the 49 additional survivors generated by the action of APC, 42 of them in the second half of the study, or were other factors coming into play? And I think it was the latter. When you look quite carefully at the previous data, I think it becomes unconvincing. If you only look at the original New England Journal paper, you'll have very little insight into the previous trial. There's only a, a tiny fraction of the data there. There's a lot more on the documentation that was submitted to the FDA and the FDA review. And certainly the advisory board at the FDA had concerns about the inconsistency in terms of 28-day mortality effect in the first and second phase of the trial. I wondered, was this due in part to protocol changes that were introduced mid-trial? I'll mention a couple of them. One of the main changes was to change some exclusions because they wanted to reduce non-sepsis-related deaths. So they specifically wanted to exclude patients with severe chronic underlying disease like cardiovascular and respiratory problems, which is quite reasonable. If you have many patients with gross chronic disease, you know, especially cardiac and respiratory problems with septic shock, it doesn't give your drug the best chance to show its benefit. But there was actually a lot of patients coming into Paris with chronic health points, chronic um, health Apache 2 points, which you actually have to be extremely unwell 
to, to merit chronic health of actually two points. For example, cardiovascular, you're talking about New York Heart Association class 4 patients unable to carry out any physical activity, confined to bed or chair, symptoms at rest, or respiratory chronic health of patch two points, severe exercise restriction, can't climb stairs, chronic hypoxia, hypercarbia. And basically you wouldn't really want these patients in your trial. I think Dr. Anand has managed to avoid having these patients in his trial and they also weren't in privilege shock. But there were, there were 182 of these patients in the first 720 patients in, in Paris. Just briefly, another protocol alteration was they were changing the saline placebo to 0.1% albumin to make it more uh, an equivalent proteinaceous solution to try and improve the blind. But I think blinding is potentially a concern in all the APC trials because clinicians are going to be having a look at laboratory results, and APC can certainly have a significant effect on, for example, APTT. So blinding is not necessarily always perfect. Anyway, just to get back to the main point, I was surprised to see that the protocol change is aiming to exclude patients with gross chronic disease, those with Apache 2 chronic health points, actually failed in the second part of the trial. I think that the whole issue around Apache 2 chronic health points is, is quite important, especially when you have a look at those with and without chronic health Apache 2 points in prowess. Overall, 80% of, of the prowess enrolment did not have chronic health Apache 2 points. That was 1,345 of the 1,690. And I think really rather astonishingly, there was no treatment effect with APC versus placebo in this massive subgroup of 80% of the enrolment. There was only 13 pure deaths in the APCR versus placebo. And if you look at the 20% of enrolment that did have chronic health points, the 345 out of 1,690, evenly split between the two arms, bizarrely this is where you see the action in terms of reduced 28-day mortality with APC versus placebo. So with 36 of the 49 overall fewer 28-day deaths with APC and prowess ended up in this small, odd group of patients with severe chronic disease, the patients that actually the protocol changes was essentially quite trying to exclude but failed. So it didn't really make any sense to me that this drug was supposedly going to have a massive effect on people with gross chronic cardiac and respiratory problems with septic shock and multi-organ organ failure and no effect on those without gross chronic disease. But with a primary endpoint of 28 days, it's, you know, we often see such patients, elderly medical patients with gross chronic problems in our ICU on day 28 unless we withdraw support. And obviously, whether or not support is withdrawn can affect the 28-day mortality. And I think if you look at the withdrawal of support data on prowess, it's interesting. In the first half of prowess, the withdrawal of support was equal at around 17% in both arms. That was about 70 patients in each arm having treatment withdrawn. But in the second phase of the trial, where 42 of the additional 49 28-day survivors appeared, the treatment withdrawal rates were really different. It remained around about 17% in the placebo group, about 74 patients. But in the APC arm, the withdrawal rate plummeted to just about 9%, or just 32 patients having support withdrawn in the second half. 
So, in other words, about 40 patients less than in the placebo arm had treatment withdrawn in the APC arm in the second half of premise, similar to the number of additional 28-day survivors emerging during that phase. And given the odd result in those with gross chronic health problems and potential problems of blinding, one wonders if it was a combination of biases. You know, too many patients with gross chronic disease getting into the trial and treatment continuing beyond day 28 um, that led to the mortality difference rather than APC effect itself. And just finally on that, there's some other data to support the idea. As you know, the FDA requested the premise follow-up trial. That's just about all the additional 28-day survivors were still in hospital, half of them in the ICU on day 28. And the follow-up papers eventually showed there was no difference in the number of patients who were discharged home between the APC and placebo arms, and no difference at three months, as in Dr. Anand's paper. So that's one potential explanation as to why prowess looks to have been um, a false positive trial, but uh, I'm sure there may be others. Thanks, Dr. McKenzie, for that very complete uh, explanation of the background. You mentioned several points about residual confounding bias, which uh, I think we all know can creep in even into rigorously performed independently funded prospective randomized control trials. So I'd like to ask Dr. Anand, you and your team present very extensively both in the manuscript and also in the electronic supplements a lot of information about the population and the methodology of your trial. Do you think that there are still possible residual confounders that should make us hesitate when we examine your team's research? Yes, indeed. There are always confounders always, even in rigorously conducted clinical trials. So we try to minimize these bias as much as we can. One of the main issues in independent clinical trials is to be able to afford for cost of drug. And in this case, the activated protein C was relatively expensive, uh, the cost was uh, close to 7,000 euros uh, in France uh, by the time we conducted the trial. So we obtained from the French government uh, that they will reimburse the hospitals for the use of the drug uh, in the clinical trial. So we had to select the sites among uh, those hospitals in France that were using in routine activated protein C, uh, we had to select those who were willing to stop using the drug during the whole period of a, of a trial, except, of course, for patients recruited into the trial. So there are some selection biases in the sites who were recruited, but I don't think that these selection biases in centers may have substantial impact on the results of the trial. But this might be viewed as a confounding bias. I don't see other major confounding bias, except, of course, uh, the one related to the premature termination of the trial, that for sure statistical power is much lower than uh, initially expected, and if the trial has stands alone, that would be a major issue for the trial. However, as I said previously, 
the trial results have to be replaced in the general context of several randomized trials yielding negative results and very in keeping uh, it together. So my view is that might be selection biases of centers related to the reimbursement of a drug by the government to hospitals and the lack of power which is really the effect of which being really attenuated by the similar findings obtained in, in previous trials. So, Dr. McKenzie, in, in your previous answer, you mentioned several things that may have introduced substantial bias into the original prowess investigation, one of which was the attempt to exclude patients with severe chronic comorbid illnesses which, as we know from Derek Angus's research, actually is the majority of patients with severe sepsis. So clearly excluding patients with cirrhosis or COPD or heart failure may uh, raise important questions about the generalizability of any findings. But I'd like to ask both of you, Dr. McKenzie first and then Dr. Anand, So we look back now at uh, over a decade of research on activated protein C, and what lessons can we take away from the activated protein C story? Uh, Research in illnesses such as severe sepsis and many other critical care disorders is certainly full of uncertainty and complexity that can make it difficult to find reliable, generalizable answers from clinical trials that really test one intervention. So do we need to start thinking about alternative study designs? To follow on from your point about many patients having significant chronic cardiac and respiratory problems and, and hepatic problems, I mean, obviously you cannot exclude all these patients from the trial. The individuals I was talking about were those that actually qualify for chronic health Apache 2, and you really have to be at the extremely severe end of the spectrum. And I think that type of patient where you've got zero exercise tolerance or you're hypercarbic at rest, they're not the ideal patient to put in a trial. And they're actually probably a relatively small percentage of the people that have got chronic disease. However, in terms of you know, lessons to be, to be learned from the APC story, I suppose there's lessons from regulatory bodies, industry and the critical care community in general. I doubt the regulatory bodies would now proceed with a license if presented with a situation similar to Prowess. I think they're more likely to request a confirmatory trial in patients where the benefit had been suggested. That would have been the equivalent of requesting a Prowess shock-type trial in 2001 without drug approval. And as it eventually turned out, with, with the Prowess shock and Professor Nan's study, efficacy was not confirmed, so APC would, would probably never have been on the market. So I think regulatory bodies would bear, bear that story in mind. Industry... You know, probably will have learned a few lessons, but I think a good lesson for industry and critical care in general has been the excellent way in which industry and academic critical care collaborated in a very transparent manner with strict terms of engagement for around design and conduct and analysis of the Prowess shock trial. I mean, ideally you would have it completely independent, but if you're going to have industry input, that seemed to be a big step forward. And a similar approach may be useful in the future for industry-funded trials. It may give them more credibility. I suppose industry may be also found that their very aggressive marketing techniques started acting against them at some point. As far as critical care community intensivist lessons to learn, I think that hope 
to avoid a repetition of the undesirable scenario that developed with activated protein C. Dr. Anand alluded to it earlier. Over, over the seven years or so after approval, clinicians found themselves in a difficult position. Many were uncertain about the best approach for the drug because of the inadequacy of the available evidence. On one hand, data from requested trials like previous follow-up, enhance, address, resolve, was emerging and the controversy was steadily deepening. But simultaneously, there was more pressure on clinicians to prescribe. Obviously, the drug was there, the license was there for use in certain groups, and high-profile guidelines were being developed with industry health and being pushed hard. And I think probably overall the critical care community relinquished too much control to industry. And whenever you went um, to a critical care meeting, there were always multiple presentations, often quite biased from key opinion leaders and frequently had industry ties, and it all seemed to be geared towards persuading clinicians to prescribe. And I think clinicians were in a difficult position with the uncertainty, um, and clearly that was not ideal for patient care. So I think a lesson to be learned from the critical care community is try and avoid that, that scenario developing in the future. It was reassuring to see major intensive care journals interested in publishing the sort of articles that had contrasting views and eventually leading up to having new trials, like, like Professor Shock and Professor Nan's study, um, which I think has settled the issue. Dr. Nan? I guess that there are first two or three things we should worry about. The first one is that as far as I know, there are very few, even no, new things in the pipeline. So currently the uh, pharmaceutical industry is uh, moving away from uh, the field of sepsis. Uh, this is certainly not a good news. The second thing I guess uh, at least I am worrying about is that the few very recent trials in the field of sepsis or even IRDS uh, have yielded not only negative results, but uh, experimental treatments did worse than the control arm. Uh, this was true for the glutamine trial, for the C 6H trial from the Scandinavian group, or for HA4 in ARDS. So there might be something missing in the understanding of the disease itself, and thereby leading us to generate false assumption. In most of cases, resulting in negative trial and unfortunately in some cases harming the patients. So there is, in my view, an urgent need to go back to a fundamental preclinical evaluation of the pathomechanism of sepsis as well as RDS, but because I'm not sure the two diseases are really different uh, one from each other. And we need to reassess the pathomechanism of sepsis by the means of new tools available. So currently, most of our assumptions are still based on an old fashion of investigating onset and development of organ dysfunction during infection. And there are still not enough investigation using new molecular tools trying to refine the definition of sepsis, which should move from a purely clinical phenotype to a more specific genotype of sepsis. And then we may be able to progressively move their personalized care for sepsis and designing 
drugs with very specific target for a very specific group of patients. And I think uh, this work has to be done urgently, both by the academic people and by the industry, and hopefully with strong interaction between them. Meanwhile, trialists has also to redefine the way we should design clinical trial. It's really a shame that it took more than a decade to conclude that activated protein C was not active. That means that for 10 years, we were using a drug that was not beneficial in a number of patients. So we have to be able to conduct more rapidly clinical trials. So that means stronger collaboration in between networks around the world. And thanks to John Marshall and the INFACT initiative, which uh, is actually trying to uh, organize such, such a collaboration in between networks around the world to be able to offer very fast or fast-track evaluation of drug. Uh, and uh, this fast-track evaluation may really be investigating in the same time numerous or at least two, three, or four different drugs in, for example, adaptive uh, design. So really, my guess is that we should, in the f next five years, focus ourselves in two areas. The first one is to identify using molecular tools a genotype-based definition of sepsis to allow personalized care. And the second area is to design new tools, identify a core set of outcome, and try adaptive design, such as adaptive design trial done in the cancer field should be translated to the sepsis field. So today we discussed the article Recombinant Human Activated Protein C for Adults with Septic Shock. This is yet another trial that did not show a benefit on mortality of recombinant activated human protein C for patients with severe sepsis or septic shock. We discuss the design of this trial as well as the negative findings in light of a decade's worth of research in activated protein C. We discussed how the controversial story of the original study may have led to a false positive result in the initial research that was then followed up by several large randomized controlled trials that rigorously tested the hypothesis that activated protein C resulted in improved outcomes for patients with septic shock. Thank you for joining us.